Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. She is a fascinating, fascinating politician. She, she was raised as a Mormon. Her father uh, is a, was a policeman, a Mormon. Mother was a nurse up in Morrinsville, which is near Hamilton in the North Island. Um, Jacinda's no longer a Mormon, but, but you can, if you know that, you can, if you listen to her make speeches, you can kind of hear a residue of a kind of about her Mormon upbringing, which is, I've got an obligation to do good in the world. Those are the wise words of Dr. Mike Richards. Mike is an accomplished author, former political advisor and social activist who is most notable for his part in the eventual repeal of capital punishment in Australia. This is a wide-ranging conversation where Mike takes us on an incredible journey through his storied career. He shares some incredible stories of being in the inner circle of some of Australia and New Zealand's most influential political power brokers. Hang around to the back end of the episode where Mike talks about how he spotted Jacinda Ardern early in her political career and played a key role in her ascent to power. Humans of Purpose is now 100% community-powered, with our generous Patreon supporters enabling me to cover the majority of my monthly costs of production. As always, a big thank you to our Patreon community of supporters, including Humanism, Clyde, Susie, Kynan, Deb, Sue K, Carmen, Misha, Jasmine, Sue P, Joel H, Levi, Jules, Sally, Will, B, Lyndon, Olivia, Joe, McCartan, Joel F, and Stuart. You can become a monthly Patreon supporter today for as little as the price of a single cup of coffee at $4. Of course, you can support us at whatever level you like. We recorded this conversation in that short lull of relative stage three freedom. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mike as much as I did. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. It is terrific to have you here on Humans of Purpose. Uh, I can say for myself, my parents do not stop talking about you and your wonderful partner, Wendy, but um, your work precedes you in many ways, but this is a conversation I've looked forward to for some time. So welcome. Thank you, Mike. I'm pleased to be here. Was that a, probably a bit of an um, unwieldy wind-up, but <laughs> it's good to have you here. And maybe we could start by just um, getting you to talk a little bit about your background and history and um, what, what you've done to date. And um, I'm, I'm mindful that that could take some time because you've done so much, but I think it's um, an exhilarating journey that I, I'm, I'm looking forward to having you share. Well, as I want to say, I haven't had a career so much as uh – a series of self-indulgences. <laughs> and they started pretty early when I was a kid because all I wanted to be was a journo. Um, I don't know where that came from, actually, because no one in my family had been a journalist. Um, but I really wanted to communicate to people. Um, and I started, I, I mean, I call it a book because it, it had covers and it was stapled together and That's a book. it had words. And, That's uh, a legitimate it, book. It didn't go anywhere other than around my family, but it was a book about cars because I, as a kid, as a 12-year-old, I was fascinated with cars, particularly Porsches actually. But and does that's, that, uh, that's in, another story. Does that obsession exist until today? Or? Well, in an attenuated way, yes. <laughs> I've, been, I've been a bit self-indulgent with my cars. Have you got a Porsche now? No, I've got a, a BMW X7. Oh, wow 
which is about the only one on the road that I can see. I keep expecting to see them everywhere because they came out at the end of 2018. But uh, I got it because uh, my wife and I, Wendy, do a lot of babysitting and we pick the kids up from school and pick them up from creche. And when our kids ring up and say, Dad, we're stuck at work, can you pick the kids up? Uh, I've got to be ready. And my other car had two child seats in it, but we've now got seven grandchildren. Oh, my God. So um, with Wendy in the front and two kids in the back, that's all I could take. And and with car seats that were installed, you can't easily put them in and take them out. <laughs> so uh, I decided I'd get a, a car with three rows of seats. Yeah. That's, impre- uh, that's an impressive um, flock you're, you're building there. <laughs> and two two seats in the back that are installed and then two booster seats in the second row so I can take, I can actually take six kids in the car. Wow! So this is, this is not an advertisement, by the way. So <laughs> we're not we're not pitching additional seats in my X seven, but um, yeah. So you made a car book, and so that that was the sort of the start of you sort of delving or exploring that passion for journalism. Yes, and and I devoured the media. My my mother was interesting. She she had a radio, uh, a wireless, as we used to call them, on the mantelpiece in the kitchen. And it was tuned, as I later learned when I was older, to 3AR, what would now be called Radio Australia. I thought that was radio because (laughs) she she never changed the channel. (laughs) And so there was news, there was current affairs that I listened to avidly. There was broadcasts of the parliament, which maybe came into fore in my uh, indulgences later on. But it wasn't for years that I came to understand that there were other channels, commercial channels, that you could have listened to, but we never did. Mm. So maybe that started something as well. So that started something. Uh, what do you end up doing? Um, obviously, you're young at that time when you're discovering your, your love of media, journalism, current affairs. Where does that take you? Well, I, I started, I was offered a cadetship at the Herald, uh, the afternoon paper broadsheet in those days, and, uh, I was really wedded to the age, and so I went to the age not on a cadetship, uh, but as a um, what was called a stringer. That is to say, somebody who's at university and who uh, can file stories as they find them, and if they're good enough, they go in the paper. Well, I, it, this was in the in the uh, middle sixties, and of course, there are gazillion stories in universities in those days. So I was filing all the time and in the long vacations I used to go and work full-time on the paper and I'd be sent to police rounds, I'd be sent to the Supreme Court, to court rounds, which were formative experiences for me, to, to be exposed to uh, a justice system, to, to go to uh, press conferences with ministers, federal ministers, um, to cover something at the university where the Prime Minister came. Uh, that that was extraordinary, and I was always worried that they'd find out that I would have done it for nothing, <laughs> um, because I was getting I was getting a. Um, so this is the, this, this is where we come back to the indulgences thing. You, yeah, you, indulgences. you legitimately are talking about your work as though you're just doing things that sort of childlike Mike likes doing. Yeah, exactly, and I loved it. I mean, where else? I used to say to my old man, I used to say, "Where else in the world can you meet the prime minister one day?" And the Chief Justice of the High Court a week later. Yeah, unbelievable. Uh, in their presence. And you're a kid who knows nothing. And 
uh, it was offered to me to, to work full-time as a journalist at the age. But I looked around the newsroom and thought, in order to succeed at this game, I need to complete my education. So I, I went back and completed my uh, undergraduate degree in political science. Um, and by then, I was kind of, here's the second indulgence coming. I could see academic life beckoning, and I did a master's and eventually a PhD, and and I got hooked on that for a long time. What did you do your master's in? Political science. Oh, great. great. Yeah. And yeah. PhD as well. PhD in political science. And what, did yeah. you, what was your dissertation or thesis on? Well, actually, it was about the subject that I came to write a book about, which was Ronald Ryan, who was hanged in 1967. Um, and uh, at Melbourne University in the politics department at that time, through the late 60s and 70s, the head of the department was a man called Alan Davies. Um, and he was very interested in the application of psychoanalysis to political leadership and also to political behaviour. So I fell in with that school. It's known as the Melbourne School. And there were people in it, younger academics and um, graduate students like me, who joined together and we used to read Freud, collected works. We used to read other books on psychoanalysis. And in the end, my PhD was, was uh, a study of the personality, if you like, the criminal personality of Ronald Ryan. Now, that was so theoretical and so abstract that I kept most of that out of the book that I subsequently wrote, and that was just... What does the book become uh, primarily about? Well, it, it's, it's called The Hanged Man, and the subtitle is The Life and Death of Ronald Ryan, and there is references to his sort of criminal personality um, in it, but, you know, I, I sort of left the theoretical bits to one side. I didn't think the reader would be interested in that. So it's a narrative about his childhood, his upbringing, um, where he turned to crime, why he turned to crime, what the crimes were, escaping from Pentridge, shooting the water in the course of the escape, being tried for murder, being convicted, all the appeals failed. And he subsequently, unlike most of the capital cases in those days, uh, being having a, a, a sentence of death commuted to one of life imprisonment, his execution went ahead in February of 1967 and I was heavily involved in the protest campaign around that hanging. It was just unconscionable in Is that the last one in Australia? Last one in Australia. Yeah. Unconscionable to execute somebody. I mean, there was, if the truth be known, yes, he, he shot the water during the course of the escape, but I don't think anyone thought that he was trying to kill him. He was trying to stop him from pursuing his co-escapee. And it was a terrible thing. The prison officer that he shot, I interviewed uh, his daughter and it absolutely uh, destroyed her life and it was a shocking thing. But to say, on the one hand, we value human life uh, but we're going to take one away because you've taken this life away, eye for an eye sort of stuff, just never struck me as as reasonable or appropriate. Yeah, it's crazy to sort of think about uh, the state deciding that uh, life is no longer valid or it's just kind of the papers are stamped. Yeah, and we know through Australian history, much more about American history, that people have been wrongfully executed yep. on little evidence, wrong evidence, flawed evidence. Uh, so happily... 
the world has been turning away from capital punishment. Uh, in the 60s, probably only about a third of countries around the globe had abolished capital punishment. Now it's about two-thirds. Michael, um, how, what was the reception like to the book and what, what did you decide to do next? Um, well, the book, um, I'm pleased to say, went went very well. It, it uh, won a couple of awards. It was runner-up in the National Biography Award in 2003. Uh, it was a joint winner of the True Crime uh, Prize. So it, it's, it's still in print. Uh, it still sells, and uh, so I was, you know, pleased about that. But um, it took a long time. Um, people will know uh, the name Barry Jones, who was the leader of the uh, anti-hanging campaign. I, I actually led the student anti-hanging campaign, which is where I came to know Barry, so it's more than 50 years ago. And Barry's uh, uh, been a close friend of mine for many years, but... Uh, I can remember when I started on the book, I'd run into Barry somewhere and he'd say, how's the book going? And I'd say, oh, well, it's coming along. So I was obsessive about the research and so on. Uh, But then I realised I actually had to wait 30 years for the cabinet papers to become available (laughs) because they were were restricted. And so I was doing all this massive amount of research, but I'd keep hitting uh, a roadblock. And uh, I'd still run into Barry and I'd have to fudge and say, well, it's doing really well. Anyway, Barry progressively got uh, impatient with me and if I ran into him in the street in the city, he'd say, where's, where's the book with this <laughs> rising inflection? And uh, in the end, it became, where's the effing book? And uh, after that, I used to, if I saw him coming, I'd cross the street. But... <laughs> Uh, actually, the good part of the story is that when the book was launched in 2002, Barry launched it along with Steve Brax, who was um, Premier, and uh, Steve Brax had an interesting experience himself growing up in his family, coming to the view that uh, the hanging was wrong as it was approaching. And he he, he put a massive amount of effort into the the launch of my book well, I was really pleased about. So anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's so it must have been incredible to have that kind of buy-in as well because it's not just that people are passionate about the topic but to have notable people take an interest and sort of be part of that launch must have made a world of difference. Yes, it was. We we launched it um, uh, just across the road um, from Parliament House because that was where the demonstrations I mean, there were two people in academic gowns holding torches for t- 10 days, night and day, 24 hours a day for 10 days in protest about the approaching hanging. So um, that's where we launched and uh, it was a satisfying moment, I suppose, after all that time to finally complete it and see it in print and get it well received. And so uh, what happens after the book? What's next for you? Um, well, by then, of course, I um, this was two thousand and two. After the execution uh, in sixty seven, I went off into journalism. Uh, then I became an academic, junior academic uh, at Melbourne University in the politics department, teaching American politics of all things. I mean, I might have preferred Australian politics, but there were people in place doing that, and the need was American, so. I taught American politics for a while, but 
I decided that for me, academic life had its limitations uh, in the sense that um, I wanted to have more of an impact through what I was doing. And I felt like academic life was a bit bit of a closed shop. It was academics, in those days at least, it's, I think it's very different now, but in those days they were talking to each other. Uh, and they were publishing papers. Well, only... I'm not sure that much has changed, Mike. <laughs> well, no, I, I think it has actually. I think uh, academics are much more engaged these days. They I mean, have if to you be. look, you yeah. look at the conversation. Yeah, what an extraordinary! Oh, it's my second favourite website. Uh, an extraordinary um, institution that is. That's that is one of the best examples I think of effective um, policy and, and social commentary publication exactly. that exists. And I think also another way that you know. Um, Academics operate today is through Twitter very much, and um, and through being quite um, vocal and um, connected with their research to online communities. Yeah, but uh, I think the previous model where academics are reviewing papers by other academics that are mainly viewed by academics is entirely um, not that useful for the greater public. Yeah, and that that was my view. So I was approached about uh, going to work for the then Premier John Kane in 1982. He'd come in in April. And not long up after that, I was approached about um, because I'd done the journalism thing about becoming his speechwriter, which wow. I did. I took that on, and uh, John and I got on extremely well, and so much so it was it was scary um, because we'd go to speeches in the car, and the speechwriter's got to go because you never know how your speech goes unless you're there to hear it. And you can only learn. It's, a, it's like throwing darts at a dartboard with a blindfold on. If yep. you don't go and hear the speech, you don't know what he stumbled over, you don't know the words that you put in his mouth, whether they are easily pronounceable by him, you don't know the content, whether that worked for this audience. Um, anyway, I used, to, I used to do a lot of research on the audience, perhaps more on the audience. Who was it rather more than the content of what was in the speech? That's really interesting. Um, well, you you know, you've got to make it meaningful for them. It's for not. Sure. It's really not just I'm here and here's what I've got to say and dump it on them. But, re- but maybe um, it. But maybe that wasn't always the case with with, with political speeches. You know, before that, um, I think maybe it was very much about here's my agenda, here's what I want to deliver. Yeah, I'm not going to think so much about the context. Yeah. Well, you can see people sort of turning off in yeah. those oh, sort yeah. of situations. But he's, uh, I remember the particular example um, where uh, I think it was 100 days after he'd been in office and he gave a speech at Melbourne University, the Graduates Union, and being a university audience of academic staff and, and students, uh, particularly graduate students, I thought, oh, well, they're used to 50 minutes, I'll, I'll, I'll write a 40-minute speech and it'll have a lot of content and a lot of programmatic elements and policy and stuff. Anyway, we got in the car. I'd given him the speech. We got in the car and uh, he was very prone to having a nap in the car. <laughs> okay, it was only sort of 15 <laughs> minutes in the car. And I was sitting, he was in the front with the driver and I was in the back and I was saying, you know, you've got to have a look at the speech. You have a look at the speech. And he didn't have a look at the speech at all. Uh, that, that was the level, I think, of confidence and trust that we'd built up over time. And I, Anyway, he, 
he delivered the speech without having read it first. How satisfying? Sorry, okay, please continue. No, well, the 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 end of the story was was devastating because I sat up the back, and uh, he was down at the front with the uh, uh, pro vice chancellor and some other deans of this and that and various other senior academics, and I wandered down to the front to see him at the end of the speech, and in front of everybody, to my horror, he he said. Gee, Mike, that was a good speech. I wish I'd read it before I came. <laughs> sort of destroyed all of the the impact because I learned uh, from that moment on, actually, that if I went out with him to a dinner where he was speaking and I was sitting in the audience, you know, on another table, as I typically was, when the conversation around the table, eventually people would say, oh, what do you do? I work with the Premier. And what do you do? Well, I'm the speechwriter. And they would say, did you write this one? And I'd say, no, this is all him. <laughs> okay, it was a white lie. But they, they don't want to hear that the kid over on the other side of the table yeah, yeah. wrote the speech. They yeah. want to hear that the Premier wrote the speech. So it was a, it was a little conceit that I uh, followed religiously after that. Yeah, so, I mean, what is it like, I mean, for you to see, you know, like do you get a lot of satisfaction from watching a speech delivered well by John Kay that you've written? Like what's yes. the feeling like? Yeah. Oh, look, it's uh, it's terrific. But there are some clangers too. I mean, there there was a famous clanger early, early on. In those days, of course, we didn't have computers. We didn't even have WordPresses. So were you writing? By I hand? used to write in longhand and we had a team of women who used to type type it on Remington golf ball typewriters. Now, your listeners probably wouldn't know what they were. but No, they, I think they would. That's would amazing. they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, so we had a – and we were running late because I was at that stage uh, I, I was doing a lot of work and it was to an oil and gas conference at Dallas Brooks Hall as it then was and uh, it, I was running so late. He had to open the conference, international conference, big deal. And I had done my research and found that – as a as a gas producer from uh, Bastrate Gas, natural gas, we were up there, you know, as a sovereign state with the volume of gas that we produced. And so I found this U-Butte figure which said we were the sixth largest producer of natural gas in the world. And, uh, and I'd written in and the typists had done it so quickly I didn't have a chance to check it. Anyway... Um, uh, he he gets there, uh, I sit up the back and a fellow came and sat down beside me. He he didn't know who I was. I didn't know who he was. But he, he had he had cowboy boots and he had a, a sort of a cattle head sort of thing <laughs> holding one of those shoelace ties, that, yep, you know, yep. those. He didn't have a cowboy hat on but he might have. That's how he looked. Anyway, so the Premier opens the speech and he refers to Victoria's, you know, preeminence in producing uh, natural gas and he quoted the figure. Well, the typists had left out, and I forgot what the number was, but it was something like 2.6 billion cubic metres of, of gas, something like that. It doesn't really matter, but they'd left out the billion <laughs> and he didn't know whether it was million or billion <laughs> yeah. so he just got to the point and he's reading the speech and he says you know victoria is a major international player in this natural gas field last year uh, victoria produced 2.6 cubic, 
cubic metres of gas, <laughs> not knowing whether it was million or a billion. Anyway, the guy sitting next to me, the Texan, turned to me, not knowing who I was, turned to me and he said, I use more than that to cook my dinner. <laughs> and wow. I thought, oh, my God, I'm in real trouble here. <laughs> and we got out onto the street outside Dallas Brooks Hall and on the footpath, and, I, and this is early, early days, early days, uh, like within the first couple of weeks of my starting on the job. And I thought, I'm going to get fired. This is terrible. This, it, it, he was made to look silly. And he came out, joined me on the footpath, and he said, what was that bloody figure? And I said, it was billion. And he started laughing. <laughs> and I started laughing. And I'll never forget, there was a woman walking to work along this footpath and she saw the Premier and this kid standing on the footpath laughing like hyenas and with this quizzical look on her face saying, it's only nine o'clock, why on earth is the Premier laughing so late? Well, from that moment on, John Kane and I were joined at the hip. It was just, <laughs> I knew that I could screw up and I wouldn't get fired yep. because you all get, here's the lesson. You're going to screw up at some time. He's going to screw up too, as he did. You know, you're going at high velocity in those political jobs, both him and the staff, and you're going to make mistakes. And that wasn't the first mistake I made. I mean, some of them haunt me still, but uh, that's the important thing. I think that the takeout is that you absolutely do your conscientious best. You know and there was hard, hard work in those days. I made it home to dinner, as my wife reminded me. In one year, my first year, I made it home to dinner eight times in a year. Wow. Um, that's in the nature of being on the staff of a minister or a political leader. And you do it knowingly, but that's what it is. But if you know that you've got his back and he's got yours, it's, it can be a formidable combination of people working for a common purpose. Well, that sounds like, a, um, you know, the basis for a strong and productive relationship. I am really curious um, to hear about your experience working on Jacinda Ardern's campaign. Well, that that, that has its antecedents going back a long time. I, I, did, um, uh, I did a job for Paul Keating uh, when he first came to office as Prime Minister. He'd been Treasurer, of course. And Don Watson, who's a friend of mine, was he, his speechwriter. Is he the American political author? Uh, no, Don's Melbourne-based, but he, he, he's written about... Books about America? Books about America. Okay, and, okay. Yeah, uh, and uh, he's, he's, he's an absolute He's written know, some star. seminal books on the States, hasn't he, in US politics? Uh, he, he wrote one where he went across the United States by train and he reflected on what he found and saw and... I mean, he's an extraordinary writer, Don, and he writes in the monthly and uh, the Saturday paper, and he's he's written six or eight books, I, I would think, and they're all extraordinary. Uh, and Don, uh, this was in the early days of um, of, of Keating uh, becoming prime minister, having defeated Hawke in a ballot, uh, and it was December of nineteen ninety one. I know. Be right, yeah, nineteen ninety two maybe, um, and uh, the office wasn't working because when Keating had first challenged Hawke in the previous June, 
and been defeated, hadn't got up. All of the the Keating staff who were on the Treasurer's staff, they were all dispersed through sympathetic Labor um, uh, ministers um, because Keating was very loyal to his staff. And when he challenged again in December of that year um, and succeeded, he brought all the staff back. But their qualifications and experience and focus was really on treasury matters, economics, and they were economists. They were an incredibly talented uh, bunch of economists. And so to now be Prime Minister, they thought the work of Prime Ministers was kind of flim-flam compared with the hard edge of economic reform and so on. And uh, anyway, long story short, the office wasn't working because there was a mismatch. There was there were people who, great as they were, didn't yeah. fit the roles anymore. Yep. Um, and uh, Keating got me in to do a review of the staff and make recommendations about restructuring the staff, bringing in new people, which I did, recommended, brought them in. Um, and that seemed to have worked. And then Helen Clark, who was over in Australia, heard about what I'd done for Keating's office and asked me to come and do the same job for her in in um, in Wellington, which I did. And uh, she was in opposition at then at, at that point, and she subsequently became prime minister. So that's the background of how I came to be back in New Zealand from 20, uh, 2014 to twenty seventeen, which was uh, the Labor leader of the opposition, and there'd been several in a row had not been uh, working. They'd made no inroads against the the government. The John um, Key government? or The, the Key government yep. and the Bill English government, uh, National Party. And so my brief was to uh, do a review and restructure of the leader's office, you know, 24 staff and others around the uh, shadow ministry. Um, and... Uh, um, and the leader at that time was Andrew Little, who's now the Justice Minister. And Andrew was was terrific, he, he, decent man, um, lawyer by training, um, straight shooter, no baggage, but not charismatic. And and uh, Key and then English really um, were in a position of, of uh, continuity. There was no impetus to want to change. And then one day I saw, um, I was sitting in the office and I saw Jacinda do a speech to an almost empty chamber in the parliament. And it was about child welfare. And she did it without a note. Um, and it was gobsmacking. It was just charismatic, powerful, um, I mean, emotionally... Uh, dynamic, and I thought, holy hell, you know, <laughs> um, we've got to get Jacinda into um, uh, a leadership position. So um, after I'd worked on the staff, uh, I mean, I started working with the caucus. I used to go to caucus meetings and caucus retreats and and so on, and so uh, it, it devolved into... How do we get Jacinda into the leadership? So, Mike, this is quite extraordinary, but are you kind of saying that you spotted Jacinda? Well, others yeah. others have said others have said that. I'm sure but, others have claimed but, it. But there, but there were people. Look, it was surprising. I mean, 
it goes to the point about people in the bubble sometimes can't see yes, yep. what is in plain sight. So maybe because you had not been in the institution, you were an outsider. I was the fly-in, fly-in, fly-out consultant yep. who has no preconceptions about this person, uh, but I made inquiries and uh, I discovered all kinds of things that I don't think her colleagues had fully understood. She'd worked for Tony Blair in the Cabinet Office in London. There were 80 staff and she told me she'd never met him, as most of them hadn't. She'd been President of the World Federation of Socialist Youth. Um, uh, she, she had a background. She'd been in the Parliament, I think, for six years at that point. Yeah. And, and I think her colleagues kind of took her for granted. She was only, she was only 37. Was the, was the female effect in play? I think there was an element of that, although New Zealand has been historically better than Australia in terms of female leadership. I mean, there was a time when um, the the Governor-General was a woman, uh, the Prime Minister was a woman, the Leader of the Opposition was a woman. Uh, So I I think they've got a better record on these things than Australia has, actually. For sure, for sure. But I don't think there was a negative sentiment about Jacinda, but I just don't think they... They didn't take it seriously. They, well, they didn't rate her in a way that somebody coming in from outside with no preconceptions of of what she uh, was or how old she was or whatever. She is a fascinating, fascinating politician. She she was raised as a Mormon. Her father uh, is a, was a policeman, a Mormon. Mother was a nurse up in Morrinsville, which is near Hamilton in the North Island. Um, Jacinda's no longer a Mormon, but but you can, if you know that you can if you listen to her make speeches, you can kind of hear a residue of a kind of about her Mormon upbringing, which is I've got an obligation to do good in the world. I don't think it's any more complicated or more simple than that. She does it without being puritanical, exactly. Which I think is um, yeah. very effective. Yeah, she doesn't preach. Yeah. She's very grounded. She's sensible. Um, so once she you loves spot, the scotch, <laughs> that's awesome. So once you spot her, what's the process like as a consultant helping to elevate her through the ranks and kind of get that? Well, right? very difficult because you know I, I have no authority to do anything. Um, all I could do is um, you know talk to people um, without being an advocate because that wasn't my role. Make them aware of things that they. Uh, anyway, there's a good outcome, and <laughs> clearly, <laughs> I, I think she's well. She's. I think Time Magazine rated her as one of the hundred most influential people oh, in the world. Mike, I would even say during COVID, how she's managed the crisis, um, top ten, top staggering, 15. isn't it? Yeah, it's unbelievable. But also, I think what's interesting is that she breaks every rule in the book for what a PM should look like and yeah. should act like. And I think that's that's been you know. Um, She's a young, attractive woman who's pregnant in in office, yeah. uh, and she says things that people are. It's not okay normally to say, but everyone's thinking it. Yeah, it's like she's got her ear to the social conscience of what it, what everyone's thinking. But yeah. normally PMs tend to be a bit disconnected from the populace in that way. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, one of the one of the great qualities of of Jacinda is that she. She articulates what people have on the tip of their tongue to express, uh, and that's not 
that's not just being clever. I think it's entirely natural with her. She's very grounded. Do you know, uh, just coming back a step, on the day that Andrew Little um, resigned in the interest of the party because he could see on the polling, internal party polling, that they weren't going to win it with him as leader, uh, the party polling had the Labor Party on 24%. In 10 days under Jacinda, it was 37 Wow. And that was because suddenly the kids, young people, saw somebody that they could relate to, not merely broadly in their age bracket, 37 at that time, but younger kids could relate to her. They could see what the older cohort of party people steeped in, you know, the old ways of doing things, that they couldn't see as clearly. Do you see parallels between uh, someone like Jacinda and Obama? Yeah, they break moulds and they are uh, utterly grounded in in what they're doing and why they're there. I was thinking also just in how they mobilise um, typical non-voters. Correct, yeah, yeah. Um, it's about engagement and what we're seeing at the moment is a profound lack of engagement um, in the democratic systems in the Western world. The yeah. United States is the obvious example. Would you call it, uh, would you go as far as to say it's apathy? Uh, I think it's despair. Yeah. That, that's worse than apathy, I would say. Um, absolutely. I mean, when you when you see the critical problems facing uh, Western countries um, uh, where the political class these days as often as not are self-interested, they're interested in their own careers and salaries and allowances and I mean, they're not all like that. There are some good people, of course, on, on all sides, I would say, all the political parties. But too often, as we see, they're motivated by their own career ambitions. And why people like Jacinda and Obama are different is because that wasn't the case. It was palpably not the case. I mean, that they were, they had a vision and they had a commitment to seek to mobilise people in support of realising that vision. And that's a gift. Mike, what's it like when you've worked with people who are that high profile um, after you've helped them? Like, do you stay in touch? Do you have calls or emails or do you kind of just step back into the shadows as you were kind of maybe doing following being a speechwriter? Sort of you're, you're not kind of on display as much. Um, well, I, so, uh, speechwriting is a, is, is a good, is good practice for uh, <laughs> being anonymous <laughs> yep, yep, yep. because, you know, p- other people are delivering your words and it's their name is on the speech. And so you you get used to used to that. I mean, I, I still do it. I, I write things for other people. It doesn't bother me whether it's their name or my name on it. I mean, I'm interested in outcomes. And I think one of the one of the problems in our democracy, just to go off on another tangent, is we've been too preoccupied with the vehicles rather than the destination. Yeah. Um, yeah. People are tribal, liberal, labour, Ford, Holden. Sometimes they go for a Prius, the mm. Greens. Um, and they they get hung up on that. Um, they get hung up on that tribalism. Yeah. 
of the vehicle. It's not the vehicle, it's the destination. Yeah, I was having a good discussion with someone about uh, the other day about this, how people, there's sort of different types of people. There's people who pick a party and just run with that party, whatever candidate they run, and then there's swing voters. And I think swing voters have got a bad rap here because they will base their decisions, um, you know, maybe at the time on the policies of the candidates and, and what they're taking to that election and, you know, not thinking about as much who will win or what the traditional value set are. But I find that utterly bizarre as somebody who's quite rationalist and I think empirically focused. I mean, I would think that whatever election comes along, you, you take every candidate on their merits, see how well they pitch their vision and, and their values and how they plan to achieve it, um, and then you kind of go from there. But the other thing to say is that I also think that um, – the, the lack of vision has been a serious problem here. And I think when two visions are that remarkably close together, no matter who's pitching them, and they don't show you much of anything, um, it's kind of like it's a bit of a nothing choice to make in a way of what should be a really important choice. Yeah, it's exactly right. I, <clears throat> I think um, our democracy and Western democracies generally are in a bit of trouble. Yeah, what, what is there any kind of simple road out of that, or you know what has to happen for things to maybe get to a better place? Well, I think people have got to be more engaged. Uh, the younger generation, especially, I mean, they know the issues, they understand the imperatives. For example, about climate change. Um, but I think people are turned off. They're in despair. What difference can I make? Um, people are maybe getting more animated about. Indigenous issues and so on currently, which is, which is good. Um, but I can't see an easy pathway to a better political system than the one uh, that we've got at the moment, which is not working, in my view. Yeah. We need to wrap up in a minute, but I am keen to sort of ask you because um, the way you've done your career I think is very interesting. I think it's um, unique in a really positive way, um, really what, what you said about you following a series of indulgences um, over time. Would you prescribe that for others, young people, listeners? I, I think uh, career works best, work works best when you're doing what you love. And that doesn't have to be the same thing through the whole of your working life. Um, what I would say is that life is linear um, because <laughs> there's no turning back. But in career, if I've learned anything on the journey, it is that there's a time when you do the job of your dreams. There's a time when you do the job that recognises that you've got a young family and you have to be home more often, not eight times in a year. That's not a great record, Mike. That's not going to work. Wendy won't approve listening back to that. No. Uh, she keeps reminding me. <laughs> um, there are times when you've got to do it for the money because, you you know, you, you want to buy a house and you, you've got to sustain that through a mortgage and so on. So what I would say is that um, looking back on my own career, so to speak, um, it's not linear and – maybe there's a virtue in it not being linear, that making differential choices for what was appropriate was the right way to go, for me at least. I mean, when, when I was a kid, I mean, my father was a pharmacist. He had a job as a pharmacist from when he went to pharmacy college until he retired. My uncle was in the bank. He had a bank job uh, for the whole of his working life. 
That's not so anymore. People are able to make different trajectory decisions. The one thing that I would say is um, don't be afraid to vary it up in terms of what suits you and don't think that the next job is forever or even for a long, long period of time. Uh, there's no... Um, there's no shame anymore. There's no detriment to your career uh, achievements if you take a job for two years, let's say, for argument's sake. Uh, I think those kind of expectations are changed. Once upon a time, 40 years ago, if you presented a CV and you had two years here and three years there and two years somewhere else, uh, somebody recruiting might ask some questions about what happened. Yeah, you're some kind of floater or recalcitrant. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's true anymore. Mm. Um, and I think you've got to make make it work for what you and family, if you you know married and got little kids and uh, or older kids, you've got to you've got to vary it up to make that work life balance work for you. That's really well um, summed up, Mike. How can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Um, is there is there a website? Is there an email you want to give out? Uh, there's a LinkedIn. You can yep. look me up on LinkedIn. Mike Richards? Yep, Dr. Mike Richards. Dr. Mike Richards on LinkedIn. Terrific. Um, so I am just thrilled to have had this conversation, and I think there's a part two because we only got up to 2017. <laughs> so um, hopefully you'll join me uh, at some point down the track for a, for a reshoot. Good. Mike, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.